Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, Matthew chapter five, let's jump in. Message seven in this series, Chasing Perfection. Message 17 in Matthew chapter five. Since October of last year, we've been kind of digging through one verse at a time. Grab your notes so you can follow along. Maybe turn on that app if you're following along electronically. To those of you who are in our video teaching service at 9.30 or 11, good morning. And thank you for being with us. Thanks for being on mission with us as we try to get ready to welcome all of our church back before we move into our building Uh, At the end of the fall sometime, 9.30 a.m. service, I look forward to being back with you on Easter. All of us will be together next week on Easter for the first time in a long time. Our whole church will be together in person, but 9.30 a.m. service every Sunday after Easter. I'll be back with you, 11 a.m. service. I'll be at Summit Christian through Mother's Day, so come over a few miles down the road. Check out SCA, see what's going on over there. We know that it's going to take all of us being on mission, being willing to sacrifice a little bit, but every week that building gets a little closer to completion. I cannot wait to be in there. Why are we chasing perfection as a church? Why have we spent seven weeks chasing perfection? Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Because we are followers of Jesus, we are trying to follow the teaching of Jesus where he said, hey, just be like me in everything that you do. And what we're learning through this series is we really have to depend on Jesus to live like Jesus. So this series on chasing perfection is really about chasing Jesus. Everybody say, Jesus, If you love Jesus more after this 10-week series than you did before, if you think more highly of him, if you receive his love more clearly than I have succeeded as a Bible teacher over the last 10 weeks, I really want to help you know who Jesus is so you can follow him well. Here are today's goals as we dig into Matthew chapter 5. Number one, to see where to aim our rocks so that we can be right with God. Last night as the sun began to set, I don't know if any of you saw a beautiful sunset last night. As the sun began to set last night and the first stars became visible in the sky, I knew that millions of Jewish people all over the world were beginning to celebrate Pesach, which we call Passover. Um, They were reflecting on an event that happened nearly 3,500 years ago when God called the people of Israel out of Egypt and he told them that he would give them a lamb in um, in place of their life, and if they would go into their house and hide under the blood of the lamb, that his death angel would pass over them and they would be protected. And he said, on this day every year, I want you to celebrate that I provided a sacrifice for you so that you could be close with me. So to our Jewish friends all over, maybe all over America, all over the world, to our missions partners, Philip and Heidi Lytle, Avi Shalom and Hannah Eitan, um, and his wife Connie in Israel. Uh, their greatest ministry happens as they have the Passover Seder in the Holy Land with friends, and they show how every moment of the Passover is a picture of Jesus to all of our Jewish friends around the world. Happy Pesach on this Passover day, and may we celebrate one day together in Jerusalem with Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus, the Messiah. That's our goal one day. Amen. So as we look at the Passover, to summarize it, we would say this, the Passover means that someone has to be punished so we can be right with God. So where do we aim our rocks so that we can be right with God? We're going to talk about that today. And then we're going to realize that most of us are looking for love in all the wrong places. We're going to go back 4,000 years to a well, and we're going to meet a man named Jacob who his entire life was looking for love 
in all the wrong places until he found the angel of the Lord. And then we're going to kind of fast forward 2,000 years from that, 2,000 years ago, and we're going to meet a Samaritan woman at the exact same well who her entire life had been looking for love in all the wrong places until she met the Son of God in Jesus. We're going to learn that only a relationship with Jesus satisfies, but we're only going to learn that if God opens our heart and his Holy Spirit plants seeds today. So before we dig into Scripture, let's pray together if we can. Take that deep breath that just settles your spirit into this moment. And let's start here. If you have any unconfessed sin in your heart this week that could keep you from hearing clearly the voice of God, just ask God to forgive you for where you may have failed, transgressed, got off track this week. Ask him to cleanse your heart and to allow you to have a fresh start this Easter week. And then ask God to speak to your heart Tell him that you'll be listening. God, speak to us today on this Palm Sunday. We're going to listen as well as we can. Show us where to aim our rock, even though it will hurt our hearts so it might save our soul. And God, show us where to find real meaning through Jesus, because we know ultimately he is the only one who can fill our hearts. God, that's our prayer. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. Matthew chapter 5. Here's what we've been focusing on the last four weeks. We've been in a little subset of chasing perfection called Jesus and marriage because Jesus is using the metaphor of marriage to teach us how to be right with God. So he said, let's learn how to be right with God, but let's also learn some of the things he's saying about marriage. So for the last four weeks, we've been talking about marriage because frankly, it, we need to talk about marriage in the church. We've said if we live in a culture where lust is very high and divorce is very easy, that marriage is in trouble, and we indeed live in a culture where lust is very high and divorce is very easy, and marriage, marriage is in trouble. So we looked four weeks ago at the power of lust and how to, how to deal with that. We talked about becoming a loser, losing things in life and in marriage so that you could win in life and in marriage. Last week, we met a prophet named Jose, and we looked at how, how faithful love can be, how how you can go one step beyond faithful in your marriage. And today, we're going to look at how Jesus loves in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to zone in on verse 32, but we'll read verses 27 through 32 one more time as we kind of wrap up this four weeks of learning. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Today, we are going to really zone in on Matthew 5.32. And we're going to look at a verse that honestly, I have struggled to read all four weeks that we've been in this subset of verses. As a, as a pastor, as a, uh, as a brother, as a brother-in-law, as a friend of many, I don't like the way this verse reads because it appears to give very, very, very little hope to the victim of adultery and a divorced woman. I just don't like how it sounds because we get to the tail end and it's like Jesus teaches all this stuff on marriage so you never end up one of these things. But it's like, Lord, what if you end up one of these things? It, it feels like God is being unfair. 
in this statement to victims of adultery and the divorced woman. It feels like that until you remember that Jesus walks into the picture. Because when Jesus walks into the picture, everything changes, amen? And one of the devil's tricks with us is to make us believe that God is unfair in some things that he gives us. But the only way for us to ever think that God is unfair in what he asks us to do is to forget that he gives us Jesus as our helper and that Jesus steps into every broken situation. So I read this and I think about, um, I think about the victim of adultery. I think about the divorced woman and I think without Jesus, it doesn't sound like there's much hope. But when you read about the encounters of Jesus in Scripture, two of the most beloved encounters with Jesus in Scripture are Jesus and the victim of adultery and Jesus and the divorced woman. And as we study what it looks like for Jesus to walk into those pictures, we find tremendous hope. Let's start with number one, the victim of adultery. You know, I I don't know if you last spring watched The Chosen, a mini-series about the life of Jesus. Uh, Season two actually launches on Easter. I hope you, like me, will go home Easter weekend and Sunday night at some point fire up season two of The Chosen, picking up where it left off. Uh, The first time there's ever been a multi-series, multi-episode mini-series on the life of Jesus. And it's through the book of John, and that is the best book to go through because the book of John is filled with stories of memorable interactions between Jesus and and people. One of those is in John chapter 8. I cannot wait till eventually they get to John chapter 8. They left off with John chapter 4, but eventually they're going to get to Jesus and the victim of adultery. And in John chapter 8, we're going to read a story like this. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach him. The temple courts, it was an area of 36 acres where today the Dome of the Rock sits. A lot of room for people and crowds to to have church together, to have Bible study. Rabbis would always sit down to teach, so they were probably in an area called Solomon's Colonnade, which kind of had a few benches built into the side of the row. It would have been shaded from the heat, and Jesus sits down as a rabbi, and he begins to teach. They begin to have Bible study, and then their Bible study is interrupted in verse verse 3 of John chapter 8. It said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who who had been caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Everybody say a trap. This was a trap. They could care less about the sin of adultery. You say, how do you know that? Where was the man? Where was the man? I mean, to commit adultery, this woman either had to be a married woman who slept with a single man, or she had to be a single woman who slept with a married man, or she had to be a married woman sleeping with a married man but not being married to each other. Where was the man? Like, where was the couple that committed adultery? They weren't there because these Pharisees and teachers of the law were not really concerned about adultery. They were concerned about trapping Jesus, because they felt like they had given him two options that would not work in his ministry. The first option was to take his ministry and his teaching of grace and throw it out the window by saying, killer would have ruined Jesus in his ministry, they thought. Or 
Jesus could have said, I disagreed with the law of Moses, which would have ruined the ministry of Jesus or so they thought. So they thought, we've got him now. We've, we've given him two solutions. Both of them are impossible. So what does Jesus do? So Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. So what was he writing? The only thing you write on the ground with your finger, football plays. He's like, hey, Peter, <laughs> Peter, you're going to do an out. John, I want you to run a deep post. Andrew, I want you to kind of leak out of the backfield. If they, like, <laughs> nobody knows what he was writing. So I think it was football plays. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Everybody go deep. Um, Continues at this. Those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Two, two things on this screen before we go to the next verse. The older ones left first. Listen to me, older, more mature Christians. We really need you to lead the way through this season. I'm only 43, but this is in my 43 years, just been the most difficult season spiritually that I have ever been a part of. Older, mature Christians, we need you to lead the way. We need you to lead the way in grace. We need you to lead the way in love. We need you to lead the way in spiritual fruit. We need you to lead the way in spirit. Older Christians, we need you to go first. Mature Christians, we need you to go first. But then getting alone with Jesus, at the end, it was just her and Jesus. You need to understand whether you're sitting in this room or whether you're watching online, whether you're watching our video teaching service, being alone with Jesus is the safest place in the universe to be. And if you can figure out this week on Easter week how to spend a few moments every day getting alone with Jesus, your week will be better than if you did not. Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Question, did he pass the test or did he get trapped? Did he pass the test or did he get trapped? It really depends on how deeply you study the life and ministry of Jesus because he's either just changed the rules of condemnation or he's changed the person who gets condemned. But there is some debate over whether or not he passed the test or whether or not he got trapped because he changed the rules that Moses gave or he changed the person who would be condemned because of the sin. In Luke chapter 5, a paralytic is kind of lowered through the roof in front of Jesus and he tells the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And everyone says, whoa, 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 whoa. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is the right question. You should think on that. If Jesus is saying he forgives sin, maybe he's saying he's God. Here, they would be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Who tells people that they're not condemned for sin when Moses says they are condemned for sin? Now, Jesus already told us at the beginning of this series that you've got to think a few levels deeper spiritually to learn and understand his teaching. Remember Matthew chapter 5? Don't like... Get below the surface. Don't think. Don't think so simply. Get below the surface. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. That's the Old Testament scripture, the Hebrew Bible. I've not come to abolish those. I've come to fulfill those. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So did, did Jesus change the rules? 
Because he's either just changed the rules of condemnation or he's changed the person of condemnation. Based on Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, does Jesus change Old Testament rules, yes or no? No. He doesn't change them, he fulfills them. Which means he did not change the rules of condemnation, he changed the person who would get condemned. See, spiritually speaking, the only person who would throw a stone this day would be the woman caught in adultery. And the only person who would be stoned or condemned on this day would be Jesus. See, everyone walked away but her, but her sin had to be condemned, just not in her. And the only way she could not be condemned was if Jesus would be condemned. Which actually means when you look closely at John chapter 8, the only victim of adultery on this day would be Jesus. He was the only one who would pay God's penalty for this sin. He was not a participant in the adultery, but he would pay the price for adultery. Everybody say grace. We learned a little bit about grace last week. Grace is treating someone like they got it right when in fact they got it wrong. Jesus treated this woman caught in adultery like, like, like she was right when indeed she was wrong because he would take her condemnation. Grace is a big, big deal. But say truth. Truth is also a big deal. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. So Jesus said, I will be condemned for you. But then he said, leave your life of sin. Jesus had freed her from the death of sin, but he also wanted to free her from her life of sin. And the only way you and I as followers of Jesus are freed from death to life is because we have thrown our rocks at Jesus and we have said our sin deserves condemnation, but Jesus, we want you to be condemned rather than us on the cross of Good Friday, prayerfully that you will raise out of the tomb of Easter Sunday. But it seems like in 2020 and 2021, all the Christians have picked up a rock and it ain't to throw it at Jesus, it's to throw it at one another. And listen, I think the heart behind the rocks of 2020 and 2021, probably pure. We hate sin. We hate sin. We hate the movement of sin. We hate when people are trying to confuse people by sin. But it's time that we put the rocks down so we can be on mission together because you know that like everything on Facebook is not special revelation from heaven. Like you know that, right? Like it's time to stop throwing rocks at each other, church. Like, you know not everyone who voted for Trump is a racist, you, right? You know that. Put that rock down. You know not everyone who wants more racial unity is a Marxist. You know that. Put that rock down. You know not every gun owner thinks the price of having guns is a mass shooting every now and then. Put that rock down. You know, after broad scale messaging that every black life matters, that now we're beginning to remember and Asian life matters. The media is just now remembering what we were taught in Sunday school, red and yellow, black and white. They are, they're all precious in his sight. I'm glad they're finally catching up, but it's time to put down the rocks. The world is hopelessly broken and the answer is Jesus, not your rock. Amen? Amen. 
And the only way the sin of the world will be judged ultimately is on the cross of Christ. So every time you throw a rock at sin, you need to know for your rock to succeed, it has to hit Jesus hanging on the cross because he's the only one who eliminates it. Grace and truth. Yes, grace and truth in Jesus. So Christians have to have heavy hearts. We have to have humble spirits. When we look at the sinfulness, the brokenness, the misguidedness, and some of our brothers and sisters spiritually, because we realize as we hold the rock and look at their sin, for them to get it right, Jesus has to die. So I want them to get it right, but it's with a heavy heart and a humble spirit that I understand how that happens. My rock has to hit Jesus, not them. Throwing stones. We need to stop throwing stones at each other and we need to more readily admit only because we've thrown our stone at Jesus can we be forgiven. Can we be changed? Can we be made right with God? We all have to remember this. Before you were a defender of Jesus' righteousness, you were a destroyer of Jesus' righteousness. It's probably good to always speak and act like you remember that. Before I was a defender of the cause of Jesus... I was the cause of his crucifixion. I need to make sure I always remember that. James, Jesus' little brother, would say it this way, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Maybe to put it another way, this Easter week we could say this, you can't throw stones and carry a cross at the same time. It's nearly impossible if the weight of your cross weighs as much as Jesus' cross. Before you were a defender of Jesus' righteousness, you were a destroyer of Jesus' righteousness. And as a woman caught in adultery was ready to take the stones of the defenders of God's righteousness, Jesus reminded them that that used to be them. And only through forgiveness had they been offered any kind of cleansing And one by one, they walked away. If we say anything, let us say with the Apostle Paul what he said in nearly his last letter that he ever wrote to the church. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm the worst. You see, I want to make a statement about what I believe in 2021 about the world. Here's what I believe about 2021 in the world. I'm probably the worst sinner there is. I desperately need Jesus. And my hands, are, my, my hands are so full with the cross I'm trying to learn to carry, I really don't have a ton of stones to throw at other people. Amen? Like, what would the world think of the church if that's the posture that we carried? While everyone else threw stones, what would it look like for the church to carry a cross and to help each other carry a cross? Even when we were convinced that they got it wrong. But we knew the only way for them to have it wrong and for that wrong to be righted would be for Jesus to die on the cross. So we march with Jesus to Calvary. If you are in here today and you're the adulteress, you're the unfaithful, you're the sinful man or woman who has stumbled into church this morning or maybe found us online in some way, and you need help, pick up your rock, throw it at Jesus, receive his forgiveness, and leave your life of sin and begin to follow him. The victim of adultery, the love of Jesus, grace, truth, Jesus. Let's look number two at the divorced woman. 
We see the victim of adultery, and we see that Jesus was the only victim of adultery in John chapter 8. But we look at the divorced woman. Remember the Gospel of John. It's our favorite book for stories of interactions and encounters that we can remember. In John chapter 4, we see another one of these famous encounters. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, Old Testament Shechem, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, before we teach you about the Samaritan woman, we should teach you about the guy whose well it was, Jacob. The word Jacob translated in Hebrew is heel grabber. And it described Jacob well because Jacob's story is the story of somebody who spent his entire life trying to grab for meaning, trying to grab for security, trying to make it his own way without relying on any help from God. When he came out of the womb, literally he was holding on to his brother's heel, his twin brother's heel. So his mom said, look at this little heel grabber, Yaqub, and he became Jacob, the heel grabber. Sometime in his 30s, he stole his brother's birthright because he thought that that would kind of give him more meaning and security in life. Sometime in his 70s, he stole his brother's blessing, spiritual blessing from God. Sometime in his later 70s, because he desired the beauty of a younger daughter, he went against Middle Eastern tradition and said, I want to marry your younger daughter, not your older daughter, because I just like how she looks better. Sometime in his 80s, he began to collect bounty from his father-in-law and realized, I need a lot of what he has so that I can be secure. His entire life was, about, was all about me. What do I need in this moment to take care of me? And he found himself at 90. Not a lot of people do the math to understand this part of the story. He found himself at 90, wrestling with God after a life of trying to handle things on his own. His father-in-law was behind him coming to kill him, and his brother was in front of him coming to kill him. And at 90, he wrestles with God and says, please, oh God, I've gotten it wrong my entire life. I've spent my entire life looking out for me, not looking up to you. God, if you will somehow spare me in this moment, they're chasing me from behind. They're going to meet me in front. Lord, if you could just help me. If you would bless me, I will follow you. I'll worship you again. God touches the socket of his hip as they wrestle all night. And at 90, he limps into Shechem. And he discovers a well there and says, this is the land that me and my son and my people are going to live in. He wrestled with God and chose to surrender. And 4,000 years ago, he limps into Shechem and he plants this well. This is the well, Jacob's well. This is the well where Jesus is having this conversation. And up to this well comes the Samaritan woman. Jesus went to Jacob's well. He's tired, so he sat down, and a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? If there was ever a New Testament woman who was a spiritual comparison to Old Testament Jacob, it was the Samaritan woman. Spent my whole life trying to find meaning in things other than God. So she says, hey, will you give me a drink? Jesus says, will you give me a drink? And she said, you're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. You shouldn't even be talking to me. Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you'd actually ask me for a drink because the water I give will quench that thing in your soul that you've been trying to quench your entire life. She says in verse 15, if that's the reality, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty again and have to keep coming here to draw water. She says, give me something that will satisfy my soul. I have tried everything and I am still empty. Jesus says, sure, I'll give it to you. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. 
Jesus said to her, I know. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Meet the divorced woman. Although that's probably an understatement. Meet the divorced woman who's getting ready to have all the love of the creator God of the universe and the son of God be poured out on her at Jacob's well. John 4, 19 and 20 and 25, after Jesus kind of exposes her, she says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. You Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. She said, give me something that will satisfy my soul. He said, I will if you call your husband. She said, I'm not married. He said, I know, but you've been married five times and now you're counting on a man again to give meaning to your soul. I know. And fully exposed, fully exposed. The Samaritan woman admits she needs help. And she's, she's praying and hoping that someone will come who will show her how and where to connect to God. She says, I'm broken. I need help. I've tried relationships. It's not worked. I've tried religion. It's not really worked. But I am confident that the Messiah called cross. Messiah, Hebrew word, Christ, Greek word. The English word is Savior. She basically said, I've tried religion. I've tried relationships. My only hope in life is that a Savior would show up. That a Savior would show up and tell me what to do. And Jesus said, that's me. That's me. You've tried relationships. You've tried religion. You tried even hiding a little bit today. But now you're with me and only me and only my loving grace towards you and only my directional truth after you've received my grace will guide you. Her story is really just beginning when she realizes that Jesus not only knows her, but he loves her. Let me say that again. Our greatest hope in life is being loved. Our greatest fear in life is being known because normally those two things don't go together. And a lot of times we hide the most from people that love us the most because we think if they really know me like God knows me, they won't love me anymore. And here's a Samaritan woman with Jesus, someone who has proven that he knows her completely and he's proven that he's offered to love her completely. It changes her life so much that she says, please stay right here. And she races back to the town that's probably disowned her, that doesn't think much of her. And she told this town of people who probably had spent their lives criticizing her, making her an outcast, saying, y'all have to come back to the well to talk to this guy. Could he be? the Savior who takes the religion that we've been working so hard for and says that's not necessary and who takes the relationships that we've been entrusting our soul to and says those won't do it. Could this be the guy? I think one of the most powerful parts of the divorced woman's story is how God used her. I wish he would use all of us this week like he used the divorced woman because here's the reality. When our response to our Redeemer becomes that of the divorced woman who has shown grace, the whole community can be impacted. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't private. Her whole life, her whole private life was public anyway. 
So she raced to tell the world about a Savior that she had met. And as we continue the story in John 4, 28, it says, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town. They made her way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And look what they said. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We now have heard for ourselves. We know that this man really is the savior of the world. Journey, what a great week to be reminded that it is the job of those who have been impacted by the grace of Jesus to invite those who need the grace of Jesus to connect to him. To go tell the whole town, this week you have to come and see Jesus. Not all of them will come, but many will. And not all who come will decide for themselves to follow Jesus, but some will. And if we could repeat this John chapter 4 process this week, that because Jesus has been gracious to us, though he's known us completely, he's loved us completely, that we go tell someone else who's afraid of being known because of their deep concern of being loved, you've got to come meet Jesus this week. He will know you completely, but he will love you completely. Not everyone you invite will come, and not everyone who comes will make a decision, but some will sit in this room over the next eight days, and they will hear about Jesus for themselves, like you know about Jesus, and their hearts have the opportunity to be transformed, but only if we go get them and bring them back. Man, this message that started with this Tension towards God because of the victim of adultery and the divorced woman has turned into a message of, a, of the heart of Jesus that's so much bigger than we ever could have imagined. We realize he's the only victim of adultery and all of us, like the divorced woman, have been searching for meaning in everything, but we will find that everything is meaningless until we finally meet Jesus. The question now for the action steps, not only will we receive and process and learn this information, but will we go invite somebody back to hear it? We begin Thursday with our first of nine Easter services. Thursday, Friday, three Saturday, four Sunday. Who are you bringing back with you? You say, Christian, I don't know anyone. Let me, let me, tell, you, you, let me tell you who you should bring back because maybe not all of you should bring back somebody. You should only bring back someone if you know that they're hurting. If you know a hurting person, if you know a confused person, if you know a broken person, if you know someone who after a long year of 2020 and the first part of 2021 is just looking for something more meaningful, if you know anyone like that, that's the person you bring back. And you get nine opportunities to do it. Remember Thursday at 6.30 and Friday, going to kind of have a good Friday bent as we celebrate the Passover with Jesus. We'll take communion together. As we celebrate Good Friday, we'll take communion together. All will have the same music and message, but Thursday and Friday will be a little more kind of Good Friday, uh, Passover meal, Lord's Supper focused. Thursday is going to be limited to less than 100 people. We'll remove a lot of the chairs in here. For those of you who have been watching online because you can't be around crowds yet, we want you to have the opportunity to come. So Thursday at 6.30 and Sunday at noon are going to be what we call our socially distanced services so that you can come in and not be within 6 or 10 feet of anyone. We're asking those of you in the 8 a.m. if you could get up an hour earlier and come at 7 a.m. to that sunrise Easter service 
let's all act like it's 1983 and this is what we do. Like we go, we put on our suit and tie and we go to the sunrise service on Easter Sunday. Did anyone do that in the 80s or am I the only one? Okay, all 13 of us, I'm asking you to come to the 7 a.m. service. We know right now as we're tracking that the 8.30 and the 10.30, we may have to turn people away and we have no overflow in our campus as it now sits. Once we're full, we're full and we'll tell people come, come back or like, or like, sorry. So if you could help us by coming early, that would be awesome or coming to one of our Thursday, Friday or Saturday services. But don't come alone. There's a man named Jesus who knows everything you've done and he's loved you completely anyway. Why not invite a family member or friend to see him, to meet him, to hear from him, because he can change their life. Everybody say grace. Grace. Everybody say truth. Truth. Everybody say Jesus. Jesus. When we understand the grace and truth of Jesus, it transforms the victim of adultery into someone so deeply loved. It transforms the divorced woman into someone who's found complete meaning. What does it do for you? What does it do for you to know the grace, to feel the truth of Jesus? That's the question this morning. Would you bow your heads as we prepare to pray? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over this room. In our video teaching services, our campus pastor will come and close us in prayer now. But if you're in the room or you're watching online, if you're here today in this moment and you have tried everything but Jesus, to quench your spiritual thirst for meaning. Turn to him today. He knows you completely, but loves you completely. He lived for you and died for your unfaithfulness so you could be close to him and right with God. If you don't know Jesus today, but you want to receive his love and you're willing to follow his truth, would you just whisper this prayer from your heart to heaven, something like this, just open your heart and say, Jesus, today I receive you. Jesus, I receive your love. Jesus, I will follow your truth. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of my past. Heal me of my hurt. Lead me forward. Today by faith, I surrender my life to your leadership. And Jesus, I ask for your forgiveness and salvation. If you just prayed that prayer in just a second, one of our team will be on the stage and they'll tell you how you can let us know that you made a spiritual decision so we can give you some information, celebrate with you, pray with you, pray for you. But before we finish praying, if you're here today and you're a Christian who needs mercy but hasn't been willing to show it, who only follows God by grace, but isn't willing to give it. In Jesus' name, I ask you, put down the stones. Pick up your cross and humbly follow Jesus. Father, we need you today. We need your grace, all of it. All of us need all of your grace. We need your truth. Lord, we don't just want to be freed from the death of sin. We want to be freed from a life of sin so that we can follow you well. We need your grace. We need your truth. We need Jesus. Thank you that you know us fully but love us completely. As that fact saturates our heart and soul this 
Easter week. Let us go get someone back in town and bring them to meet a Savior who knows us, loves us, and knows and loves them completely too. Use this Easter week to be impactful in the souls and the hearts and the lives of hurting people, broken people, people who are just worn out and spent from the circumstances of the last year. Use us, Lord. Use us this week. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.